Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I hosted six seasons of a podcast. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I have hosted six seasons of a podcast. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Friday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking our favorite go-to beers. I'm drinking Dragon's Milk Stout. And I'm drinking 1554. Later, we'll discuss our favorite beers of this season. I don't know who says you can't go home, but they're wrong. I love drinking 1554. I think my neighborhood beer distributor is under new management, and I haven't seen Dragon's Milk Stout since all the staff or all the new staff have been working there. So I've been having to travel extra far to get my Dragon's Milk Stout now. Oh, I go in and I ask, do you have Dragon's Milk Stout? Is Dragon's Milk Stout in? No. And then I turn around and leave. Do you have Dragon's Milk Stout? Is Dragon's Milk Stout in? No. And then I turn around and leave. And I go down down the, the city. What are we doing today, Dr. Ralph? This month, we reflect on our year of reading scholarship and growing as humans. First, we'll return to the segments we felt had the greatest impact on our practice and our thinking from the research we read. Later, we'll reflect specifically on our praxis. We share some of the changes we're making in our classroom and in our study that is moving us toward our goals as education practitioners. Finally, we'll share a bit about how our lives are changing outside of school and mark the 2023 recipients of the Mug of Honor. This month, we're doing our season in review, and that means we're going to take a little bit different format than we do in all of our other episodes. We have not read any new papers this month. Instead, we've gotten together and we've spent a little bit of time reflecting individually about how this, uh, this show has affected us over the past year. That includes the, the papers we've read. That includes just our developments in our education practice. And that includes just our development as people because we are all complete people who come to this space. So each segment, we're going to do some structured reflection on different elements of the past year. For our first segment, we have reflected on the prompt, what were the most noteworthy papers you read this year and why? For my honorable mention, I want to call out episode 071, which was our oversized jumbo episode uh, on the research roundup. We had special guest Yuki Tarada join us, and we did a marathon research discussion session based on his annual roundup of hard-hitting research topics. Uh, That is exactly my honorable mention as well. Well, because we didn't do the work, right? So I I feel like I couldn't put, we didn't, we read his summary. We read his recommendations. Brain breaks, retrieval practice, and videos kids can pause are good things. And, you know, those are like reinforced takeaways from that. They're all like these minor elements of practice, but it, you know, reinforces a, a, a greater picture of what you're doing in the classroom. So, yeah. Keep keep it up. It was, and uh, I really enjoyed talking with Yuki. He's been he's been on the show multiple times. I really appreciate that episode was noteworthy because it is the first and currently the only episode we have ever had that has gone more than forty five minutes. That is the first time that we had a discussion so dense, so rich with material that I don't remember what it was. It's like it's like seventy five minutes long. It's some 
and with with one segment, right? We had a second segment that we queued up and did that just went entirely on the editing floor. And that is noteworthy to me that it was a really great discussion that um, had enough content that we really needed to include all of it. So that was a lot of fun. If you if you like getting quick hits on research, there was a lot of topics that I referenced several of those several of those discussions and several of those papers even in my life. Go back to episode 071 and um, block out your calendar because it's a long one. Well, then I will go to my number three. This is this is podium. This is my bronze. Dr. Ralph and I both coming from different perspectives, professional roles. When we're thinking about these papers, um, I am uh, I uh, when I go through this end of year review, I really prioritize papers about their classroom practitioner shoulds, like the the like techniques in the classroom that you that a teacher needs to consider about their own practice and so all all of mine are going to be about teacher on the ground shoulds and and that is why my third my bronze of this season is learning to learn drawing students attention to ideas about learning which is from episode 68 authored by uh Cruz, Wilcox, and Easter. This is, I don't think, this is not an empirical paper, uh, but it was situated nicely in that episode with uh, a modern uh, revisiting of some of the problems and complications of learning styles. And so it paired together in that episode very well because the learning, the learning styles had a lot of what not to do in the classroom, talking about student ability and identifying students and labeling students. And then this paper was the, sh the should answer. We should be using language in our classroom and in reinforcing attitudes in our classroom. And when it's time to directly instruct, directly instructing in our classroom, uh, the attitudes about learning that our students have and those should be that learning requires understanding, learning takes time, learning requires complexity and challenge, everyone can learn, and that learning is both personal and social. These are the attitudes we need to be reinforcing in our classroom with our kids and uh, having the clarity of that communication and direction was um, actionable and accessible. And as such, this got my bronze podium placement. Do I remember correctly that you have some connection to those authors? This was the paper that came to you by recommendation and you're familiar with some of the faculty members? Uh, that is correct. The The authors of this paper also earned a master's degree in science education from the professor that gave me my master's of education in science degree. And I believe that they are about 10 years ahead of me. Uh, but uh, what was striking to me was how highly actionable the recommendations that they were making would be for a classroom teacher. You talk about, we've got to teach them the the transferable skills. We've got to model for them what we're supposed to be doing. But the clarity of the recommendations, this is something that another guest on the show um, brings up regularly, Morgan Polakov, something that he talks about a lot in folks who are trying to um, make progress with teacher professional development or teacher policies. He says way too often people are under prescriptive. They're they're too ambiguous. They're too vague about the recommendations because they don't want to they don't want to trample people's autonomy. And and I feel that in my bones. I I live in that in that tension. 
but I feel like this is a paper that really navigates that well, pointing out these are the specific things that students will benefit from having structure in helping them develop without going so far as to start to make calls for or be appealing for ideas around fidelity of, you know, restricting classroom autonomy or professional creativity. There, there's really, uh, there's a way for every teacher to engage these recommendations for teaching students about metacognition and teaching them about these learning strategies in a way that fits into your individual classroom culture. As I said before, you can make a list of shouldn'ts from here to infinity, uh, but the list of shoulds is going to be a smaller list. And so to have something so you don't have to worry about the shouldn'ts. Let's, let's just practice the shoulds. And that's, uh, this, this is a good paper for that. So my third place paper comes from episode 67, and it was the second segment. And this paper was, You Need to Be More Responsible, The Myth of Meritocracy and Teachers' Accounts of Homework Inequalities. And uh, I really enjoyed, I didn't enjoy this paper. I did not enjoy this paper at all. Uh, And that was noteworthy. Um, It's not that I didn't enjoy it because it was a bad paper. I didn't enjoy it because it was an incredibly heavy emotional burden for me to bear as I was reading these papers, but it was important for me to not look away. Uh, homework is something that I uh, I really quickly moved away from in the conventional sense while I was a classroom teacher. I, I certainly had some familiar homework elements, but pretty early on, I recognized that it was not something that was meeting my goals. It was something that was hurting some students uh, and not benefiting very many of them at all. And so it, it was easy for me to not worry so much about the implications of homework because I wasn't doing that much homework in the first place. Uh, but this account was really an important discussion of how homework is producing these marginalizing harms amongst students and specifically how perceptions from teachers can create these false narratives around which students are, and I'm using air quotes, successfully completing homework and is it and which students are air quotes not successfully completing homework and how are we ascribing that to be an essential component of who those students are and a really uh, a really striking comparison that was in the paper that I remember even now was when they laid out imagine a teacher discovers a student in the hallway right before class and they are copying the answers to a homework assignment from one of their peers and their peer, the peer is, is telling them the answer to number seven, and then the student writes down the answer to number seven. And the peer tells them the answer to number eight, and then they write down the answer to number eight. And it is easy to imagine, even for me, it's easy for me to imagine myself in that scenario saying that student is cheating, and I will punish them. I will apply consequences. They will get a zero. I will shame them. I, I will um, perceive them in my mind and in my heart as students who are lazy, as students who don't care about their future. Compare that story to discovering a student, let's imagine you're walking into the school in the morning and you walk past a student who is sitting on a bench outside with their caregiver. Imagine their their mother is looking over their shoulder at their homework assignment and saying, the answer to number seven is this, and the student writes it down. And then the mother says, the answer to number eight is this. And the student writes it down. And then reflect on if and how your reaction to that scene is different 
than your reaction to the scene in the hallway. And what their research lays out is that those reactions are by and large very different. And then they lay out that philosophically, we treat those things as different in ways that they are not, they are not that different. In fact, I'm not sure they're different at all, especially with regard to the impact for the student about whether they're getting that practice and what kind of message we're sending. This is my number one. And so in addition to that, the aspects that you discuss, another one that they discuss in this paper is about teacher perception of the students in that the teachers will say of students, yeah, man, that home situation is rough. They are doing a lot of things. They are cooking for their siblings and they are taking care of their sick uncle and they are, they have their own hospitalization complications and that is rough for them. And I have a lot of empathy for what they're going through and they have a hard time. They can do that. And then four minutes later, they can also say of the exact same student, the student just doesn't do the work they need to do to do well on the tests. They need to get it together and get that homework in and do that practice so that they can do better on the tests, so that they can get higher grades. And one of the things that was tough for me about this paper and why it's my number one is because it directly addresses this implicit teacher bias that we hold two narratives about our students in our head at one time. And we flip between those narratives and it's that so that we carry the least narrative burden. We are carrying the least narrative burden. Whichever of these two stories is most convenient for me at the time, that's the one that I'm going to tell myself at that time. And I'm going to switch between them. Teachers do this. Teachers, and I am one of them, I am a teacher, teachers do this. And since this is my first year that I have been a, taking a solo AVID class, I the reason why this is number one on my list is because I have encountered this paper in myself and in my colleagues over and over and over and over and over again during this last school year. This is everywhere where we will... We will say we, we will say one narrative about, about the reality of the student and the, how rough things are in one sentence, and then the next sentence will say, yeah, and there's, they, they just have to do the work because that's how they get better at things, and that's it. So like this mercy, flip a coin, no mercy narrative. And that's a problem because then what we're doing is if we take the things that you said earlier, what, what we actually are looking at at students that have opportunity gaps. We have students whose parents may not give them the answer, but can go home and sit with them at the table and glare at them until they get their homework done. Maybe that's that's the opportunity. Um, we have others that have priorities because they have other physiological and family needs that they need to meet. So the academic needs get deprioritized and then that time doesn't get spent and then those things don't happen. So we have students with a real opportunity gap. And when we double down on the meritocracy, hey, they just didn't do the work. So they didn't gain the skills. So they don't know it. So they're not going to pass. What we do is we allow our bias to directly increase the achievement gap. We do it. This, is, this isn't, oh man, it's tough because a district's making these choices. Oh man, um, I have to like conform to this new practice with fidelity. No, this is a bias that we tell ourselves to excuse the fact that our homework 
Homework increases the achievement gap because it exacerbates the opportunity gap. You may not have any control over the opportunity gap. That's not on you. But you sure as heck don't need to stick salt in that wound. You don't need to do it. You should stop doing it. If you can't form a classroom that doesn't intrinsically require uh, homework burdens that punish students with less opportunity, then you are not critically thinking about your role as a teacher enough. Well, and it's not even necessarily punishing students with opportunity, but if you if you continue to follow the line of thinking around the impact of, we've been saying homework, and that is shorthand for graded homework, yeah. which is an important distinction yeah. because practice is is fine. I would even go so far as to say good. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about like homework for points. Do this worksheet. Bring it back two days from now, and I will give you 10 points. That's, that's the scenario that we're kind of talking about. And there are important distinctions in how a teacher like me, a white man, might react to a student based on if and whether they share characteristics with me. For example, let's go back to that hallway scenario where we've got two students. Let's imagine there are two white boys in the hallway who are engaged in that copying scenario I described a moment ago. And imagine another student walks by them and he says, that's ridiculous. This homework was for practice in order to make us better. I'm not going to huddle up and try to copy off of my friend because that's both dishonest and unproductive. I didn't do it. I feel great about my choices for how I spent my time on extracurriculars and activities and then supporting my family at home. And that's what I did with the 24 hours in my day. And I'm just going to walk into this classroom without my homework because that's the, that's the honorable thing for me to be doing. What do I do as a teacher in reaction to that student who made an entirely reasonable, responsible, admirable decision in those previous 24 hours? And there is a body of research that shows that teachers react to those things differently depending on the characteristics that they share with those students. And so the logical conclusion as you work this out further and further is, well, homework is important if it's going to be relevant practice to support some students and students who don't do the practice via the homework can get that practice in other ways. They can get support in class. They can work with their peers. They can they can come back and they can do that work next week when they do have space in their schedule to be able to accommodate that. There are a whole variety of ways to do that, but all of it, there is an completely unavoidable conclusion that those homeworks shouldn't be for points. There's just no scenario where it can make sense from an equity standpoint. And that's my conclusion. I'm taking the author's work and I'm going to a pretty firm conclusion. Homework is important. Homework for points is fundamentally problematic. Yeah. So, uh, episode sixty-seven. If you if you have if you feel queasy about homework, or you think this sounds crazy, either of those things. Episode sixty-seven. For my number two, I have chosen the paper from the first segment of episode zero six nine. Teaching self-regulation. That's my number two. Carry on. 
both of our number twos. I mean, I went first on the last entry. Do you want? Do you want to? You want to roll? Uh, I've been teaching mental health Mondays for a while now, and I have been. You know, that means that comes with a sacrifice of time. No, an investment of time that could otherwise be used for content. And uh, well, we live in different regions with different ecologies, and I mean professional ecologies, um, where some people may feel more com- less comfortably being able to make those choices. But I make that choice. But, you know, I sometimes reconsider, is this the right use of my time? Because... We can give lessons in mental health awareness and self-regulation and see the kids then in the next week make all of the terrible choices that I just spent so much time. And they felt like they were with me. They felt like they were on top of it. They felt like they valued it. They felt like they were practicing the language and thinking about the things. And what was great about this paper is it reminded us, it gave an example. Now, their example was in elementary school, but I think that some of these things are going to be mappable to a lot of people. And that's the idea that when they taught these kids self-regulation techniques, there was a significant increase in the student's self-regulation, but not until two years later. And that is really important information that we need to remind ourselves that the lessons that we invest for our students in terms of helping them build their own identity and habits and peace of mind, they will have returns, but not in the school year that they're your students. So when students come back years later, They're doing that because they know the lessons that they've learned have sunk in at that time, and they're living that life that is more like the one they want to live because you gave them options by giving them information about what they could and could, you know, could choose to do. Uh, And that is, that's helpful information. And it is, it's about noteworthiness and those lagged findings of having the intervention be a significant impact, but not until down the road. From a research perspective, since I spend so much of my time thinking about research, I reference these outcomes, I mean, regularly. I spend a lot of my time and energy these days studying socio-emotional development and the importance of being able to help potential schools and researchers who want to be designing studies understand the timescales on which these impacts are happening so that we can go out and measure them appropriately and we can think about their impact in a school ecology appropriately. This has really been the clearest evidence I think I have had to date about impacts that are by and large not ascribed to the teacher who based on these findings, is actually having the impact. Because it can be incredibly disheartening for a teacher to put in the time and the energy and the work to make the choices, the perhaps very difficult choices for their limited instructional minutes, investing themselves in practicing some of these skills and providing this information to students, and to be not seeing measurable gains during their school year. And then two years later, watch those students be highly successful with a teacher that might be entirely ignoring it. And to think, well, what I do doesn't matter. 
when in reality what you are seeing is what you are doing is now mattering. And those are very different messages. Those are very different messages. And so I'm really excited to see if and how these findings replicate, if and how these findings generalize to other other constructs, right? Self-regulation is one of many things that we care about for students. But I think that the clarity of seeing these things play out on larger timescales than the single years that we schedule students just based on the logistical constraints of how we do school as the planet goes around the sun is incredibly noteworthy. <laughs> it's incredibly noteworthy. Well, I'm, uh, I'm swept. I'm sorry. A, another year of Michael Ralph stepping on Lawrence's, Lawrence's papers. I don't feel like it's you stepping on my papers for the record. Uh, I feel it, what it feels like is that I have an ally who has similar values and though we don't rank them exactly the same, we see different, we see similar things as important. So then I suppose we'll end our segment with my number one uh, most noteworthy paper for this season. And it is a very recent paper from episode 077, and it is the Unsnarling PBIS and Trauma-Informed Education paper. And this one is noteworthy for me. It is re- it's very recent, but this one has been highly impactful in my life and in my practice, even in the brief time since we've read it, for its content, for its method, for its writing, uh, in a wide variety of mechanisms. What they present is it's another, it's not an empirical paper, although we wrestled about whether that was an empirical paper um, in its reality. I think that it is. I think I've changed my mind and I think that it is an empirical paper now. Uh, but basically they are, it's a discussion of the way um, PBIS presents itself as a behavioral management system in their prominent um, online materials and compares it to the philosophical tenets of trauma-informed education. And the authors discuss that even though PBIS advocates and people who are selling PBIS products are making an argument that PBIS and trauma-informed education can be integrated, it can coexist, it can mutually contribute to one another, they present a very clear-eyed and very candid and very direct discussion of how that is fundamentally not possible. And they present it in a very clear and in a very persuasive way and in a way that advocates for their priorities, which is a trauma-informed educational system. And I appreciate that because I I claim advocacy for trauma-informed education for myself. And so if I am going to pursue that goal, I must speak with clarity around PBIS. And I appreciate having this model I appreciate having this support, this language to make that clear discussion with people in the way I move through the world moving forward because I think it makes me a better advocate for trauma-informed education moving forward. And I know that since we have done that episode, that this episode has, um, others have expressed appreciation for that discussion, for access to this paper. And so being able to have, see a paper that is having an impact And to be able to participate in that conversation is something that I strive to do more of. 
And so this paper is noteworthy to me because it is an azimuth. It is, it is something that I want my own scholarship to do. It's something that I want my words and my voice and the way that I move through the world to do. As you were mentioning just moments ago, you're an advocate for your students, and I want to be an advocate in this way. It's an excellent paper. It is so well-written. It is so clear. It is so persuasive. It is so well-documented. I want to be an advocate in this way because this paper is a very strong tool of advocacy for true trauma-informed education. Let us dispense with PBIS now. I don't think we've done an episode or read a paper that has really sunk its teeth into the what is trauma-informed pedagogy. I don't think so. So we, we haven't... We as a brand, I guess, we as educators, we as podcasters, we as even practitioners maybe, haven't really sunk our teeth into that 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 place. But we do know, we do know and have discussed many times about processing, about cortisol, about the amygdala, about our hippocampus and working memory space and... Uh, working memory capacity and storage. And um, we've talked about those things a lot. And stress hinders those things, inhibits a lot of those natural information processing. Stress inhibits a lot of the natural information processing. And trauma is acute stress that causes physiological damage to brain structures and has lasting consequence to processing protocols in the mind, in the brain. And we all experience stress. And though two different people could experience the same event and it could be a traumatic thing for one of them and really a light nothing for the other. That is true. Perception matters and how we interpret and process the experiences that we have and it's subjective. We are all experiencing trauma at some point. And as a consequence, if we make this concept of trauma-informed pedagogy, oh, yeah, 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 we're doing that in PBIS. It's really the same thing. It all fits together. It's not a problem. We are dehumanizing that component of our pedagogy, uh, and we have, to, we have to stop doing that. We have to not do that. We have to not do that. We have to say that because we teach people, and because I am a person also, um, my awareness of how stress and trauma interacts with student learning is a necessary component to teaching. It is necessary to understand that. It is necessary. Um, it's almost like you're a, a new driver and you never heard of a flat tire. So when the first time a flat tire happens, you're like, I, what is this? I don't know anything about this. I guess I just keep going because you technically can't. You can technically ride that rim. You can do it. Like the car will go. And I feel like not understanding trauma-informed pedagogy, or at least not even not even being willing to accept that it's it's a it's a negative space in your understanding, is gonna put you in positions where you're in classroom 
And you're going forward, and some of those wheels are riding on the rim. Um, and PBIS is like all rims, so don't do that. So episode 77, it was just just last month. So of, of our six, eight, of our eight podium places, we have, is it five papers? Five distinct papers? The doubles have got to be really good, right, audience? That's you would, I would imagine, right? That right yeah. I would imagine. So regardless of where they are placed, go, go catch those. The ones that, that we, we agree on, go see those. Or if you disagree, if you, if you know this podcast well enough to argue that some other paper is better, oh my gosh, do we want to hear more that? More noteworthy, yeah. You <laughs> yeah, that's... 10 internet points for you. Mm. That'd be great. Make better mistakes. For our second segment, we are going to reflect on a slightly different but closely related prompt. What were the most noteworthy elements of your teaching practice this year and why? So, Avid... This is my first year where I have a whole avid cohort all to myself. I got him as freshmen. I'm going to cycle through. There'll be sophomores before we before you hear the next episode. I'll be seeing my sophomores. My role as an avid teacher is different than my role as a college biology or general chemistry or general biology teacher. They are very different roles. And I have to advocate for my students sometime. I have to do it. I have to go and say, teacher... I need to tell you about some things about student A and have to tell you about some consequences that student A is experiencing because of protocols in your class. What can we do to help student A in these circumstances? And I accept that responsibility and I embrace it, but it also puts me way out of my comfort zone. Puts me way out of my comfort zone. And that's, because I'm an avid teacher, that is that is practice. Because I'm an avid teacher, that is practice. Um, and so, recognize you know I'm 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 recognizing a little more that uh, protocol for a general educator core content teacher is going to be different. It's a little more salient. It's not that I disagreed with this in the past, but it's a little more salient that that's going to be true for a, it's going to be different than a coach. It's going to be different than a special ed teacher. It's going to be different than a performing arts teacher. It's going to be different for a counselor. It just brings those, the difference in those roles and those lenses a little more tangible to me than they were before. So it's this weird, like, uh, ambivalent yin-yang experience where I am both more, a little bit more judgmental and concerned with the, the practices of the other teachers in my room, while at the same time having a little more respect about the differences in perspective and lenses and priorities of the people with different roles in our building, right? Like, it's a weird thing, like... Uh, that's put me in a, in an awkward space sometimes. 
So for me, I, I write the question for Lawrence Woodruff, and then I operationalize it for Michael Ralph. And uh, for, for people who, who don't know about my life, I finished my PhD during this last year. Yeah. But you'll know exactly when if you pay attention to the intros because the intro changed, and I felt great about that um, as we started sticking the DR on there. And it's good to be done. Um, it's good to be done. The, I also accepted a promotion at work, and so now I have moved into a director role, a director of research role as a vice president at Multistudio. It reframes my responsibilities in education because everything up until this point in my life, I was always in a place where my problems were mine, and I can work on developing my practice and I can make my decisions about how I'm going to write and I can make my decisions about how I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. And moving into this role is putting me in a position where much more often, I don't mind being evangelical. There's, there's, there's been, there's a whole history of jokes uh, that we've had where I, I am very comfortable going in and discussing the things that I think I like to imagine that I strike a balance of tell me why you are the way you are and I will listen. And sometimes that changes me. Sometimes I accept that I can improve, but I absolutely think that in most contexts I'm comfortable engaging and discussing because I think that that it leads to improvement for somebody, right? There's not a winner and a loser. There's somebody who has an opportunity to improve. Is why, I, is why I appreciate those interactions. That's why we do this every month. But in this context, I'm in an increasing number of scenarios where I'm not the one who's actually able to execute the things. We're going to design a study and then somebody else is going to go and do the data collection. Somebody else is going to do the analysis. Somebody else is going to write the words. Somebody else is going to be doing some of the things that I very much have control over doing. And so I like and want to do them. Yeah. And so uh, I accept that there are a limited number of hours in the day that time is a flat circle. And so I, there are some things I want to do that I don't get to do. And I've made peace with that, but wrestling with how I can be an autonomy supportive learner while I also have a long history of wanting to debate and discuss incredible minutiae of practice is something that is what I am thinking about. And that's the world that I'm living in. And so as I work with uh, somebody else who's working on a research project and they write some words and I would write those words differently, which of those things are different and which of those things are improvement and what of all of that feedback is actually the useful feedback to go back to the tiny writing information. What if that feedback is appropriate for this moment? Where should I be prioritizing developing our practice, demonstrating a humanizing multi-perspective approach to research? And what are the non-negotiables? Because I got those too. I I really do. Uh, I I was on a call very recently where I was like, I have talked to nobody about this we will be paying the teachers who were involved. And I'm telling you this so that anybody on my side who does not follow through on this, you're in a position to make that a problem because by God, if we're doing this, we're paying teachers. That's just the deal. And I feel really good about being able to plant a flag in the moments where that flag needs to be planted. 
but there's a lot there's a lot of spongy space in the middle yeah where i think something but is that something that i need to is that flag worthy yeah empower each other For our third and final segment, because this is a vestige of our original show structure when we did three segments. And so once a year, we will still go back to three segments. In our third segment, we're going to discuss what were the most noteworthy elements of your personal life this year and why. And I'm going to go first this time because honestly, a lot of what we've been doing at home, I've got two five-year-olds. They are awesome. They're fantastic human beings. I'm so proud of them. They're the, they're, they're the people I aspire to become. And my wife is working hard. She's leading a a great team of people who's doing awesome work. And we're all just kind of rolling along. And in all of that, we are moving towards sustainability. My word is sustainability. Um, Over the course of the last year, we have installed solar panels. We have transitioned to electric vehicles. Uh, we're doing a lot more bike riding. We're doing a lot. Uh, you know, the girls are gonna are gonna ride their bikes to school rather than doing vehicular drop off. We are we're thinking a lot about being engaged with the world around us. Uh, I I have been wrestling with the resol- I don't want to say resolution, but with coming to peace with my my savior complex and how it affects both my personal and professional life. And as I process my savior complex. I came to the realization that the anxiety that one experiences for other people's welfare is not love. It is anxiety. And if we misinterpret our anxiety as love, we feed our savior complex. Which, and part of a savior complex is a superiority complex. It's got a superiority component. And if we reinforce the subconscious narrative that our anxiety is love, and then we put the anxiety on the love column, we then get this un- or the subconscious narrative, I am better because I love harder. That's just anxiety. That's all that is. It is not, it is not good for you or any of the people that you work for or with. Of realizing that more anxiety does not equate to more love is an important stone to be removed from the foundation of a savior complex. And that is good for me in the long run. We're in this together. Hey, how were the beers this year? My uh, beer of the year is the Ginger Snap Pastry Stout from the Toppling Goliath Brewery, I believe in Decorah, Iowa. Uh, it is. It was a heavy, high alcohol per volume beer. I could taste the cinnamon. I could, it was a thick, syrupy, sweet stout. I really enjoyed it. It was uh, my beer of the year. I think my very favorite is from episode 71, and that is the Shake Dark Chocolate 
And this is, we've done a shake before, but this one is from Boulder Beer, which is in Colorado. And this one was a particularly heavy, it was a whiskey barrel aged, dark chocolate, some coffee infusion, uh, Huckleberry coffee. So it was a partnership with their local coffee shop. And so that checks a lot of my boxes. I like big, I like heavy. Um, Coffee is fine. Dark chocolate is good. And so that was, I remember... Um, being like right back home in the middle of the cinnamon, the cinnamon desert. That was the oasis. That was the the compelling um, return home for my center preferences. Well, we appreciate you tuning in for the conclusion of season six. This has been a remarkable six years sitting, drinking, discussing with you, Lawrence. Uh, I know this has made me a substantially better educator and researcher. And I love that we do this together. And for all of you out there listening, I hope you're finding it productive. And again, this is better together. So remember that you can find us on twopintplc.com. We take your paper recommendations seriously, your topic requests seriously, your beer suggestions seriously. So please, the more you engage, the better this is as a PLC in which we all have a stake. And so with that, For many of you, I hope you have a great start to the school year over the next month. And remember, I want to know how you want to improve and how we can help. And I just want to pursue growth. Discuss research. And struggle well.